Hello, my name is Katherine Troyer and I'm one half of your Such a Nightmare duo. I'm joined by the other half of the duo, Anthony Tresca. Other half here. This is uh, our eerie, <laughs> yeah, I don't like, how do I segue, right? This is our eerie extras, which is essentially the the place where we put all the stuff that we just can't fit anywhere else. And today, mm-hmm. which is... I'm looking July 22, 2021. We're going to do one of our sort of, uh, we just watched it. We want to share our thoughts. And the films that we're going to be looking at are, Anthony? Well, we're going to be taking a deep dive into Netflix's new trilogy, Fear Street. We're going to be talking about Fear Street, 1994, Fear Street, 1978, and Fear Street, 1666. Yay! Um, Woo! So I watched the films when they released, uh, so every mm-hmm. week, right? And and you, uh, for this episode, actually binged them. Um, yeah. And watched them kind of all together in a couple of days. I watched them over the course of, like, two or three days. So not binge in the sense of, like, I just sat down on my couch for, right. like, nine hours. But... Yeah, that would have been a lot. Um, yeah. Particularly particularly with the last film. Um, spoiler. Yeah. Not our favorite. Um, but I... I think it's interesting. I really like it when we kind of watch watch them differently because it, it does affect things, right? Like how you watch something, whether you space it out or watch it all crammed together, really does, I think, make a difference in how you see it overall. And um, in fact, I think that's where we need to begin, right? It's kind of by talking about it as this, as this larger creature before we sort of dismantle it and talk about the individual p- films. Yeah, this larger creature being... Fear Street broadly, as created by R.L. Stein, and then the adaptation process, what it looked, what the adaptation ultimately looked like, and then uh, our granular reactions to the adaptation that we have been presented. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, uh, first, did, I love R.L. Stein. So, did you read much of him as a kid? I did. I did okay. read quite a bit of R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein was, I guess, kind of my Stephen King. Yeah. In the sense that, like, R.L. Stein was really the one, the horror books that I got into when I was a kid. Now, did they scare me a lot? And did I maybe not always enjoy reading them? Yes, of course. But does that mean it's good horror? Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, I didn't read very much um, Goosebumps growing up, despite the fact that I, re- I read a lot. And I think it's because um, growing up and going to a conservative um, elementary, middle, high school, um, those were not going to be in the library, right? They were not going to be in the school library. Um, and so I wasn't, and I didn't know anyone who's reading them. So I had no way to like really know about them. Um, yeah. I've since read a lot of, uh, R.L. Stein's adult fiction. Um, and I really enjoy it, but, but I think we have to begin, you said something very accurate, right? He is, um, the Stephen King for young adult and uh, grade school horror in that he brought it into the homes and made it, um, you know, something that was worth uh, reading and engaging with in the same way Stephen King did. He's like a vampire. He, <laughs> <laughs> he got our consent and then he entered our homes and now he'll never leave. And like a vampire, <laughs> he preyed upon the, you know, the, the vulnerable, in this case, kids. Because one of the things I really love about the Goosebumps books um, and people talk about a lot, right, is that they encouraged kids to read. Because yeah. you, why wouldn't you want to find out what's going to happen with the, um, you know, ventrilo- ventriloquist doll, right? Of course you're yes. going to want to find that out. Now, did you read the Fear Street books? No, never okay. read the Fear Street books. So this was one of the, because this was a, 
this was it was in two parts. There was one that originally came out back when he was writing a bunch of stuff, and then there was a new commission of Fear Street that's come out in the two thousands. And I haven't read either of them. I know they exist. Uh, I've heard I had heard of Fear Street before, but I had never actually taken the time to read them myself. Had you read them? I had not. In fact, I think I'm going to read them now. Now I would like to go back and read them. Um, I think so. Yeah. Because. You know, one of the first things that people will tell you um, is that this is definitely not, the films are definitely not meant for little kids, right? In the same way that, that most of what Stein is writing uh, is meant for younger audiences. Um, yeah. And it's... and you can see that, like, not just in the amount of, like, gore, but also in some of the, the very adult themes that are, are being handled uh, in, the, in the films. And that is, I think, a really interesting approach to not really, to, to adapt the, the Fear Street to not be for its original intended audience. I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice. This happens all the time where you adapt something uh, in that, uh, to be for someone else than who it was originally intended. That's great. It's not intrinsically a problem or anything. It's just, an, it is just interesting. And I think it works to varying degrees. I think in it works to varying degrees of success in part because although they're inserting things in that are, are for more mature audiences, I, I don't think they're wanting to exclude the younger audiences. Right. And that's and that's fine, but, but that does kind of create a, a confusion of audience, right? And this is actually something that we see a lot um, in all of the reboots of, like, Punky Brewster and The Boy Meets World, which is now Girl Meets World, and uh, Fuller House and all of those, all of these nostalgic reboots that it's like we're, we're making it for the people who remember these when they were kids, who are now adults, but we're going to still keep it as though the audience is for kids. Um, and so then it has, but we're going to throw in weird, like, adult moments. So I felt like Fear Street was doing something a little bit similar, where they're making it for people who read Fear Street when they were kids, who are now adults, who want to see the story sort of, like, reimagined, but they didn't just make it for them, right? And so it kind of lost, I think, some of its focus, which honestly is kind of my problem with the entire trilogy, right? Is that I, I think there were some problems in terms of the, and you and I talk about this a lot, the grab bag approach, right? Where yeah. you just kind of like, I don't want to limit what we're doing. I want to make it as accessible to everyone or I want to make it as whatever to everyone. So reach on in and whatever you pull out, that's just as viable as anything else you might pull out from the bag. And that's not yeah. an effective method for horror always. No, not, I mean, our fears are usually rather... They, well, they can either be very broad or very specific. Everyone's fear is different, but good sources of horror are usually very specific. And unfortunately for this, this trilogy, a large problem is that the source of horror is just like so-so. Um, so most. what would you define as, what would you define as the source of horror? I think I would probably define, I, I, it, it's, it's tricky. I'm like, I, it's, I want to initially am leaning towards some source of horror being at the systemic level of, du of like dualism at the root of these, this rivalry between these two towns, uh, the sunny side, uh, shady side versus Sunnyvale, and saying that that's, is this, the source of horror is that blind kind of animosity that is factored up and produced and, and sustained through capitalism and this hierarch strict hierarchical relationship that's what i in my heart i 
I would like to attribute and say that that is the source of horror that the filmmakers kind of care about. But it's really not. That's kind of just an element in the background. And that's an element from yeah. R.L. Stein's original books that is not the filmmakers. That's not their invention. It's yeah. just something that is carried over. And instead, I suppose, I guess the source of horror that we're really supposed to be left with is just like sometimes bad individuals do bad things and that causes bad stuff for the whole town. Yeah. It's just like sometimes people are bad. So. Or I, I think that, that there's uh, the one that's a little between those two, right? Because the one you offered is really sophisticated. That Like, sometimes people are bad is, is the really simple one. I think that there's something that's a little bit in the middle that is um, villains or who we see as villains may actually be victims, right? Or so, or something like yeah. that. Um, but but that's not... And that's carried through, right? That that is definitely carried through because we realize that, like you know, um, all the killers didn't actually want to be killers. Um, Sarah you know, Fear. Sarah Fear actually, wasn't she actually was just being gaslit. Exactly. Yeah. That sure. that you know, Shadyville, um, all of these like bad seeds are are not actually bad seeds. They're victims again, and this takes us back to the systemic issues. Um, but I I'm not sure that, that that's the most creative. Uh, source of horror, um, particularly mm -hmm. I feel like in in twenty twenty one, and so there were things that th things that were supposed to be twists, right, and turns as a result that didn't really feel so much like like twists and turns, and felt a lot more like uh, you know expected yep. things, right? So for example, yeah. knowing that that Sarah Fear at the end was being gaslit, right? Yeah. Um, and but but taking two and a half movies, right? So taking what like six or like five to six hours to make us think that she was the bad guy, right? Yeah. Um, and then be like, just kidding, like that was way too long to be giving and, us this this twist and quite a bit too obvious. Yes. Uh, what I mean, this whole the the new ish element that gets in, introduced here, and what is what the central relationship is in the film, the central, the main plot uh, that we're so, that we're following throughout all three of these trilogies is that central queer relationship between Diane, uh, Dina, Sam, Dina and Sam, mm -hmm. um, which is, it has the potential to be rather interesting. Although it does mean that you're not exactly surprised by a lot of the twists when it's like, what the witch isn't bad this queer right. female witch is the victim right. in this horror trilogy about right. empowering queer women i never would yeah. have guessed yeah it's really hard to to be surprised by that um <laughs> by that that <laughs> lack of twist just as it's it's difficult to be surprised by the fact that it's um Nick Good and Descendants, and yeah. they do a really good job actually of, of of dropping foreshadowing. I think you know in um, seventy eight, right? We see that like young Nick is not admitting that there's something wrong, right? A curse. Um, yeah, Nick. He does and, initially because right, he right, had but, the conversations but then, with his dad, exactly. but then by the end he realizes it's better to keep the curse. Right. Locked. So yeah, it's they planted yeah. it. Yes, but again, it's not really surprising that the patriarchy, because it's passed down from the oldest son to oldest son, right? That the patriarchy is the problem, right? At the end yeah. of the day, and I'm not saying that I'm 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 all for films where the patriarchy is the problem, right? And I'm all for films that are about queer and female empowerment, but 
if you're going to do those things, then you should know that, like, it's not really going to come as a twist if you're going to reveal that at the end of the day, it's the patriarchy that's the problem. And it's the, you know, um, marginalized who have been vilified, right? Um, yeah. That especially, again, when you're setting that up in the beginning. And, yeah. and I think you let's we need to talk about what is arguably for both you and I, one of the biggest issues. And that is, like you said, the continuing thread through all of this uh-huh. is the story of Dina and Sam, which is the most yes. boring it's the weakest. It's the weakest story part. of them all. Yeah, it is. So this is the fresh, the frustrating part. Uh, so this is a trilogy that, and unfortunately, as we will talk about when we d- deep dive into each of these films, it's a trilogy in which none of the films really are able to stand on their own. Mm-hmm. I would say they are. They do require you to watch them all back to back because each film is injecting the, this through because they attempt to inject a through line, which is this main story line of Dina and Sam, mm-hmm. which shows, I think, just a real lack of belief in their core concept, which is this rivalry of the towns, this curse. I'm like, where is all of this stuff in... I mean, it's in the main plot. It's, I, I can't deny that. Sam is certainly affected by the witch. I, rem- I do remember that. Yeah. However, their relationship is over even any of those extraterrestrial things, any of these spooky kind of things that are happening. That is what we're following. And that's not a problem in horror film or mm-hmm. in any film. You can have a relationship to sure. your A storyline. However, if it's your A storyline, you'd better make sure that it is interesting. They are characters we care about. They have motivation for being in this relationship. And there is like some satisfying growth for these characters independently as well as in their relationship. Now, does Fear Street do any of those things with this main plot? No, it doesn't. Is that the is that a huge problem? Yes, it is. Does it make the films rather boring and these characters just feel really kind of like lifeless and soulless and stand-ins for representation in an algorithm devised by Netflix in order to generate content and views? Yes, it does feel like that. The end. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think everything you said is, is spot on. So, you know, I think I'm so excited by the diversity of cast and characters in, yes. in Fear Street. I think it's lovely. Although at the very end of our discussion here, I will tell uh, my, my caveat to that. But I, I think it's terrific that, that we're doing that. I also think it's terrific that the film doesn't try, like, that this isn't, a coming out story, right? Because no. like it is possible to be gay and not have to have every story of your life be a coming out story. Yeah. Um, but when the most inter- interesting thing about your character, your main character, is that they're in love with another woman, right? When and and again they try to like make that be this like twist at the beginning by by like yeah. d- using a you know gender neutral name of Sam, but but also like I feel like anyone who's gay picked up on the fact that that when Dina was talking about Sam and everyone was talking about Sam at the beginning. No pronouns. No pronouns, right? Like, and that's a game I've played before where it's like, I just, it's just easier to say partner and to say they. It's just easier Mm -hmm. for this conversation with these old folks who just aren't ready for the radical truth that I'm with a woman, right? Like, so I've done that game before. I think every gay person has done a version of that game before. So it, Mm -hmm. it didn't come as a surprise, right? Like, or it should not have come as a surprise to anyone 
the except maybe a few straight folks who were like, oh, <laughs> interesting. Um, and so I think there's another example, right, of, of where this film is trying to give us these twists or surprises that that are just what we expect to happen. Yeah, and it, I guess we've kind of naturally transitioned into talking yeah. about 1994. Let's do it. Because that is where this all, this essential relationship is established, which is the A storyline, so we'll treat it as such. Um, So that A storyline is introduced, right? I'll give it credit. It's introduced right away. That is always, well, I suppose that cold opening at the mall happens. Oh, yes, which we actually need to talk about. We should talk about that. Because it's it's my favorite part of of the film, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. Um, And it's my favorite part because... Um, because it set up some, some promises that unfortunately were not delivered throughout the rest of the the series, Mm -hmm. but it set up this promise that this was going to be, um, a film that was aware not only of the nineties, but of nineties horror, right? So there's a a lot of, um, people who've pointed out that that opening, uh, that that cold opening is very, very, very similar, not just in terms of content, but actually in terms of like shots to the opening, to the cold opening with Drew Barrymore in Scream, right? In 1996 Scream. Um, and to its, its merit, right? So, um... You know, we we have this character that we think is going to be our main character because she's snarky and she likes to read. And then, of course, she doesn't make it. We get to have like this little like subtle um, snarky moment about like how people have dismissed uh, the types of fiction that R.L. Stein and like Christopher Pike write. Like we yeah. get to have that in there. Um, we get to have all this, like, nostalgia of the 90s with the, like, glow-in-the-dark Spencer-like store um, and the Orange Julius and the B. Daltons um, and the music choices. And then, like I said, it's really lovely in the, the shots that it's giving us because there are some that look like they very intentionally were paying homage to some of the opening shots in Scream. Um, unfortunately, right, that, that opening sets up the idea that this film is going to be very sort of meta and that the whole uh, yes and that the whole franchise right all three films are going to be really aware not just of the story they're trying to tell but how their story fits into horror audiences perception of other horror right i I think it loses that rather quickly the moment we get to the 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 a-line but but for a few brief moments i was like this is fun I'm enjoying yeah, it was, myself. It was very fun. I that mall sequence at the beginning gave me a lot of hope. Um, wasn't ultimately carried through super effectively, but it was a really fun sequence. And then we get into the more of what the franchise, this trilogy, is actually going to be about. With like that scene where we where uh, the Indina's gotta like confront Sam or whatever mm-hmm. at that at the memorial of yeah. the, for this killing. And it's an, it's not a very good scene, actually. I was going to say it was fine, but it, it doesn't do a super great job. It does, it, I mean, they start off on really bad terms yeah. because Sam has done a pretty unforgivable thing in Dina's eyes in terms of abandoning her and not being there for her, denying her identity, denying her, denying their love. Those are all pretty difficult things to get over, I might say. I um, those are pretty harsh things. They are. And the film, unfortunately, doesn't ever really allow the characters to seriously be challenged for that or, like, acknowledge that or process that or 
or or just like work through that in any way and i think that is a real big problem and prevents a lot of the growth from occurring in their relationship because they're ignoring a reality that the filmmakers and the writing team built into this world that you can't deny yeah there's a reason that that most narratives um, don't begin in medias race for relationships, right? There's a reason that most films begin a relationship, a romantic relationship at least, at the beginning, right? Because you have to understand what it is that attracts these two characters to one another. And and you're right. Instead, what we see is, is we understand perfectly why Dina is rightly so, in many respects, hurt. Also why Sam is hurt, right? Because there's this like right. mixed messaging happening. But we don't understand what it is about their relationship that's worth fighting for. We never get to see that, right? We see them fighting for it, but we never get to see that, like, Sam is the only one that Dina feels comfortable um, sharing the poetry she writes, right? Yeah. Or that, like, Dina um, is supportive of Sam who runs cross-country, right? We don't see any of that. We just see brokenness, but I'm going to fight for this brokenness anyway. And that's not a very compelling um, storyline to want to follow. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really it really is not the most interesting. And I suppose you could say it kind of works into this larger theme of like, yeah, things may be bad here in Shadyside, but it's still a life worth living and fighting for. Although that doesn't actually seem to really be the theme no. of, of the films at all. So I guess maybe that was just a too generous reading of yeah, the situation. I, I think so. <laughs> and, and I think... One of the reasons you and I are being so critical of the the A line um, is the that the film proves that it's capable of doing more. Right, the other mm-hmm. characters in this film are fantastic. Yes, they are. <laughs> Simon, um, who's just his both in terms of the performance of the actor, but also in terms of the character, is funny. He's spot on. He knows how to be like quirky that mm-hmm. almost goes to like creepy, but not quite. Um, you know, Kate, I read something that said she's a little, I read something that says she's a little bit much, right? Because she's the valid Victorian cheerleader drug dealer. So that is a lot to put on to one little tiny (laughs) character. But yeah, she's, she's also, she's delightful. She's funny. Um, even Josh, right? Dina's brother, um, offers something really interesting because he's the, the knowledge keeper, right? He's the one that's been gathering the knowledge and and seems to understand. And we always have to have that character who, um, is like, wait a minute. I just happen to have a murder wall. Let me show it to you. Um, and and there are moments that are, are downright funny uh, in this in this first film um, that suggested that it was going to really kind of be again the sort of like horror comedy really creative thing. One of my favorite scenes um, is is the one where they're all hooking up, right? And so we have Sam and Dina yes. hooking up, and we have Josh and Kate hooking up, um, and then we have Simon who is like self-providing Self, his pleasure yeah. um, gratification. <laughs> yeah. and then when they come back right he's like wait a minute did you guys all hook up and then he's like me too you know and I just <laughs> yeah it, and that was just hysterical because that's again it was like they, they knew this is a scene that appears in a lot of um, slasher films so let's make fun of of it because it's never an even number of people right it's never perfectly yeah. coupled up and so I thought that the film would kind of continue offering these really um, clever, cognizant, or sort of self-aware moments, but it couldn't any time it was going to go back to the Dina and Sam plot. Yeah, because it was spending so much time just trying to get us to forget all the bad things that have happened 
to get because they use the momentum of what is the B storyline essentially, yes. which is the killers and this all the craziness that's happening in the town to justify the rekindling of the relationship from the A storyline, yeah. which I guess. I guess it technically works, but it's just so lazy to, to, because it just essentially boils down to like, we're here right now, so we might as well work together, and we yeah. might as well get back together, because we're going to die, which, I mean, I guess, sure, I've never, I have not personally been <laughs> in a true. situation in which I have a witch's curse, and like, I, I'm being hunted by a bunch of spooky killers. So and I can't you have speak your significant other who you've recently right. broken up with. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's a lot of... I can't speak to the specifics of the situation. However, I can say as an audience member, it is not the most compelling relationship to buy into if they're only together. Just kind of because. And, cause you know, here. actually, the, the, the film Speed uh, with Keanu Reeves and... Um, Sandra Bullock, there we go, uh, actually talks about that premise, right? Like, it talks about the fact that, like, in, uh, I forget, there's the line that says, like, you know, the in stressful situations, couples that get together have, like, a 90% chance of breaking up. And by Speed 2, which did not feature Keanu Reeves, they had to build that in. They had to be like, well, yeah, it, the, the relationship ended not long after we realized that the only thing we had in common is that we had been on a bus without brakes for a couple hours, right? Yep. Like, and, and I feel that, that you're right, that there's very much that happening. There are a couple other really lovely things about 94 that make it, despite the things I've said, my favorite of the three. Um, and that is, is that we have some really lovely kill scenes. Yes. Um, the, mostly, the, mostly in the back, in the back third Yeah, again, right, it's in the back third, and it's the, um, you know, and it's the characters we're not wanting to see die that are dying, I right? know, I was so sad yeah. when, like, when Tina went through, is that, uh, Kate, sorry, not Kate, Tina. Yeah. When Kate went through the bread slicer, yes. which is a great kill. Which is a great kill. Um, yeah, I was so devastated about that. I was, you know, the, even the axing to Simon's head, right? Which you kind of knew yes. he was probably going to be expendable just based on like the formula, but, but still it was disappointing. Um, we had some, some other really intro, an introduction to some interesting, um, Big bads, right? So I liked mm -hmm. the, I love the idea of a menagerie of big bads um, because that is the one acceptable form of a grab bag that I'm okay with, right? Because you can say like, mm, I personally don't find someone wielding an axe and wearing like a burlap sack scary, but I do find really scary Ruby Lane, you know, as she's singing the sure. song and holding the um, like straight knife, like that I find disturbing. So I thought that was great, the introduction of all these different, um, potential or previous monsters yeah um, I, I i really liked the multiple monsters too not only because they like made for some really fun situations for the characters to be in and it just raised the stakes quite a bit by having several instead of just one killer chasing after them but i also thought it worked really well this was one place that i thought did work rather well in by having these different killers who are out of time and coming to this to present day, 1994, which is silly to say present day, but it's present for the characters yes. in the film. But they're coming to that present day really just dives into the cyclical nature of what's happening in yes. the town. And I think using the multiple killers shows that like, it's not, these are not, these are not people. This is not unique to you. This is a situation that happens over and yes. over again. And I thought that was, that was one moment where I thought, okay, this film 
this trilogy does have something. There are some yes. good ideas here. This is one of those good yes. ideas at play. Because not only does it reinforce the the sort of systemic oppression and uh, concept, but but also you and I both um, have talked before about the fact that that a lot of horror that we enjoy has that cyclical presentation. Um, those of you that have read uh, Anne Rivers Siddons' book, The House Next Door, which is fantastic, you should definitely read it. It is um, that book, right? It's multiple families entering that home. Um, obviously, that's the premise of of The Shining, right? Where it's yeah. it's happening every few seasons. Um, and there's just something kind of really interesting about that, which makes for me the transition to the 1978 film an interesting decision because yeah. we're going to drop the cyclical um, nature for the majority of it and focus on just one of our of our big bads. Uh-huh. And, and honestly, for me personally, not the one I found most interesting, right? I would have really preferred um, a film about Ruby Lane. I think that would have been really interesting, particularly... Um, the idea, if it, the story had been from her point of view, so we didn't realize that she was Ruby Lane until she starts killing people. We thought that she was the, like, final girl, right? That would be really interesting. Um, and also, I think, would have worked better with, like, if this is a queer or female-driven horror film, why would you not go with that character? Yeah. It, it seems like a real... To introduce them, and this is one of many times in which this, this trilogy will, like, introduce something that will... You're like, oh, if developed, that would have a really satisfying payoff. But then they don't develop it. And so you're like, oh, well, I guess that was just an element. Um, This is Ruby Lane is one of those. Because you're like, that could have been a really interesting, powerful way into exploring uh, the female psyche. the and th- and things like that, but instead we just got we moved on to the second one, which right? Is and and even not about that at all, you know. And and we even have like her mom right at the camp, um, and we have her mom who is oh don't don't choke to death. Um, we have her mom who's like clearly been investigating all of this, right? Like again, there was just so much that was so interesting that they introduce, but then they don't carry through. And honestly, one of the one of the first things that happens at the very end of ninety four, but it's in seventy eight that already upset me because it's one of those things that they were like, isn't this interesting? But then they never did anything with, Mm -hmm. um, is the adult Ziggy having all those alarm clocks, right? So you assume Jillian Jacobs, who I did as soon as I saw them, I was like, Ooh, Britta from community. I mean, there's really no other, right? Like (laughs) that's, that's who you have to think of. And then, and that just throws it off a little bit too. Cause you're like, why so serious Britta? Um, but (laughs) (laughs) thanks um but the thing is is that when the 94 film ends and we get into the 78 right and we have all those alarm clocks that like tell her when to feed the dog and when to check the alarms and all that stuff we are coded to think that there's going to be something significant about time um Mm -hmm. or about her inability to remember time or or something like that right but instead it was just one of those isn't this a quirky thing that demonstrates that she's broken and it's like well there are so many other things that would have been appropriate to demonstrate how her brokenness very much was affected by her time at the camp but they didn't right that was just another kind of dropped ball no instead the second one essentially serves the exact same function story-wise as the first film it's just a rehash of the same, like, oh, we have, there's a witch curse, and then it causes people to kill people. Oh, no. We should definitely do something about that. Yeah. And I guess you get a little bit more information into the mystery of, like, here's a ba- here's a bunch of background information, and it's uh, the hand. 
We get the hand and that, we get to see the house so that when we go to 1666, yeah. we're like, that's not Sarah's house. Right. So, yeah. um, but, but yeah, but ultimately those are just red herrings. And yeah. so I'm like, you spent, we spent a whole movie on you establishing these red herrings only so you could subvert our expectations in the final one. I'm, I'm like, I ultimately, that's not a compelling enough reason to have a second film. And it's made worse by the fact that not only is, like you said, this essentially just the first film, but continued, but it's the first film, but it shows us what can happen when you do have an interesting yep. line A, right? Because yep. Ziggy and her sister are the interesting primary characters, their relationship, which is also told in, in Medius Race, right in the middle of things, um, is still interesting, but par- and it's honestly more more interesting because it's the sibling dynamic. Yes, um, I I thought that that it, this so you enjoyed 1984 more. I enjoy of these two, right. and there there's no point in trying to separate them. They're they're the same. They're yeah. just a they're just which aesthetic did you prefer, the 90s or the 70s? I like the 70s because I like the, the 70s aesthetic a little bit more. I like some of those fun choices of the summer camp, even if they didn't go far enough with it for Which me. we'll definitely we'll get into in just yes. a second. Maybe that's where we go to next. But I loved the characters. And this was, I I really felt the shift. I mean, the A uh, plot of the trilogy, Diana, Diana and Sam, is still present. That's the whole reason we're being told this extended flashback, is so that they can learn how to solve that, which is frustrating that that's the only reason we're going down this extended flashback um and it's a frustration i feel about the final one in this trilogy as well but the characters are at least really fun this time you've got the two sisters you've got alice you've got tommy is fun before he goes into the to the killer alice's boyfriend is a is a trip some of the little kids are very funny uh, and I, even I, Nick Good, right? Um, even I Nick really liked. Good is I thought the the actor did a really good job. I thought they did a really good job of the character, um, and yeah. setting him up as someone that, you know, we may not be surprised by his betrayal, but but we certainly feel his betrayal, right? Yeah. Um, which again, we're going back to the most interesting characters are not our, our supposedly main two, um, because I feel more for our villain, right, than I ever do uh, for our primary leads. Um, but you're, you're absolutely correct. The characters are, are much more interesting. They're much more developed. Um, I think for me... Have, I, I think just the, 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 at, the, at the core is all of these characters, I, ha- I understood why they continue interacting with each other yes. outside of, this, of what is presently happening yes. in, the, in the moment we're watching them on screen. I'll give the first 1994. I understand why they stay together based on what's happening on the screen. Right, sure. But if you take away that, I think what the mark of a good character is, and if they'll have a good di- dynamic, is they would probably stay together regardless. Right. Uh, and this one, I, I'm like, yeah, I believe yeah, it. These because, you know, of- the the romance that we get, which is really the, the Nick and Ziggy, right? Because Thomas and Cindy are, are already sort of together. Um, but, but the mm-hmm. Nick and, and Ziggy, we see, we understand explicitly what draws them to each other. Right. Yeah. Um, and and it makes perfect sense. And and uh, that I just I would have rather watched them try to be together and then not be able to be because you know Nick's keeping up the tradition of of witchcraft. Um, of then, course. Then uh, as one does. as one does. Um, for me though, despite the interestingness of the characters, so there was one thing I 
I made the mistake, I try not to do this, but I did, of looking on IMDb before the, I had finished the film because I, I was trying to figure out who a particular actress was and then I realized I didn't know her at all. Um, <laughs> but, but I saw that, you know, it was young Ziggy and then Jillian Jacobs was listened, listed as, as old Ziggy. Um, so I had the, it spoiled for me. Did you know, um, was, it a, was it a surprise that, that the older person telling the story was Ziggy? Was that as much of a surprise for you as it apparently was for the characters who were like, wait a minute? Uh, no, I, wait, I didn't realize that was supposed to be a surprise. Well, I didn't either, but apparently, I mean, but the characters like gasped and they're like, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute. And I was like, what? Um, so I didn't know if I, again, I think that's another moment of a, something that seems pretty obvious when, when you think about it. Didn't they have the same last name as the character? No, they thought that it was, what it was is they thought it was Cindy that had survived and not Ziggy. Right. And not Ziggy, not the other one. Yes. That, that makes sense. So my question is, was that a surprise to you that it wasn't Cindy who survived? No. Okay. No, I, I, it was, it seemed pretty clear that it was Ziggy. Again. I I don't know. I, again, because for me, right, um, that twist twist doesn't match the clear narrative this film is communicating right which is that it's the oddballs that survive right it's yeah. the oddballs that have to fight to live it's to the live. ones who don't cleanly fall yeah, exactly and conform to either all good or all bad like the yeah. towns try to make it and that is go ahead go ahead no i was gonna i was gonna say which i think leads me to my problem with the camp issue right because mm-hmm. because this film is allowing us to think about the fact that like it's it's the people who don't fit in best that are perhaps um, going to to survive right it's the people that um, are willing to to buck the system right that sort of thing um, and that would have been so interesting uh, to develop further so this is set at camp right which is a fantastic yeah. location a fantastic thing there's a reason we have tons of horror at camps um, but I felt like. Again, this was another thing that they offered, but they didn't deliver on, right? So they introduced that we're going to have this night of terror that's going to be during the color war, but we never mm-hmm. see the color war at all. That would have been a really interesting uh, yeah, activity. The enti- if the entire movie had happened uh, in real time, right? So that the two hours were the two hours of the, the color war, right? And we were just seeing it. That would have been so fascinating to me. Um or anything, right? If we had seen them having to use some of their skills at camp to survive, right? Like, but it was just like, oh, this just happens to be at camp because we need it to be out in the woods so that you can stumble upon the hanging tree, right? Yeah, and, and that really is all it is. It's just an, which is the frustrating part is they don't really use their location or any of the, or any of the specifics about that location to further any of the story. Yes, this really could have taken place at, at the same at a school. It could Absolutely. have taken place at a, at a community park. There was no reason other than that they just were at summer camp, that they this film had to take place at summer camp. Which allows us, or prevents us, from experiencing camp as well, right? So, And yes. you brought this point up, and I was like, mind blown. So um, talk, camp, talk about yeah. the other version of camp that this film really we, deserved to be playing with. Yeah, it need So... Camp atmospheres are bizarre places. They are extravagant, extreme, strange places. They are. Camp is campy. And the strangest part about this film for me watching it uh, was 
that it seemed kind of like adverse to camp really leaning into like the weirder elements of camp it really wants showed us this like sanitized version of what a summer camp looks like which doesn't make any sense given what we know about this location in the town i guess although i guess maybe if the sunnyvalers are going to this camp that maybe that's why yeah it makes no sense though that there would be a camp that that is for both groups of kids first off, yeah now yeah now that is the other part of it right so (laughs) so what we needed is we needed the for this camp to feel to feel like this really weird um moment in space right this like very liberal a liminal ephemeral um thing that didn't make sense and everyone was like why does this doesn't make sense and why like, do we okay. keep sending our yeah. children back to a place where we, they're pitted against <laughs> exactly their rivals exactly and there is this weird moment where they again start to set it up and fail to deliver it and it's in the opening moments of the film where we realize that like at this camp they've gone a little lord of the flies and they are burning someone <laughs> right um yeah. that they are, are torturing someone and they're getting away with it in a way that you can only get away with things if you don't have any adult supervision of course but again they drop that so quickly right that, that instead of embracing it and saying this is what this film's going to be about um they just kind of it, it just fades into the background like almost everything does uh, ultimately in in these films and and i think that for me that just made this film very boring right despite the fact the characters were interesting nothing else yes. about this film was interesting because it was just a straight traditional 1970s style camp slasher film Right at the end of the day, it didn't really offer us anything that we haven't seen a thousand times before. Um, and, and that's okay if it had fun with it, but it yes, didn't, it, not, it didn't have fun with it no, either. No, it didn't have fun with it, and we also lost one of the few things that the like seventies and eighties, um, particularly like eighties camp horror gave us, and that was interesting kills. So yeah. this film oh, made Oh god, yeah. That's yeah, right. This film made a decision and I I respect it, but I also question it to not show us on screen the death of any of the children. Hey, fantastic decision. I I'm I'm 100% okay with that. However, when the majority of people being killed are children, um you're that means you're having almost no death scenes uh on screen. So we're losing the Kevin Bacon death scene of Friday the 13th, right? We're losing like super intense death scenes of Sleepaway Camp. And it's instead basically we're... a slasherless slasher. Which it is. is. The only two slashings that happen, which are very brutal, admittedly, um, are the like when the big bags descend upon both Ziggy and Cindy and are just like hacking them to pieces, right? But again, that's not interesting enough to carry me through and to make me be excited for 1666. Yeah, and 1666 was, in my opinion, the weakest of the trilogy. And I think, honestly, there's not a lot to be said about it outside of the initial, this film could have been a two-minute flashback on the whole, uh, the first hour anyway. The entire sequence in 1666 was felt... For the story that this trilogy was supposed to be telling, almost unnecessary. Yes. Just like a waste, flat out, from a story standpoint, a waste of time. We could yes. have easily been told that it wasn't Sarah Fear, uh, and it was somebody, it was actually the goods in a single flashback, because they had already hinted this so much. Everything had already been set up. But instead, we go down this hour-long 
kind of dull look at a another again a sanitized version of yes. what a Puritan type culture looked like. And because the film does do, or the trilogy does do a good job of foreshadowing, by the time we get to the end, nothing about it should have been the twist. So at the very beginning, we see how prominent the good family is at the, um, in 1994, because we have signs for all their businesses up. We know they're the mayor and the, um, police officer police. right the, the, yeah, sa- the sheriff um and then we in the second one we see that nick is being kind of shady about um what he isn't co- communicating about the curse uh and and we also see that the the house that is being described as the witch's house is a very specific house in the third one we see that's not her house that's not sarah's house it's clearly um the goods house um and right so that by the time we get to that, there's there shouldn't have been anyone who was really surprised because the film set it up so perfectly. So if you're going to provide foreshadowing, you don't need to spend an hour revealing this, like, twist, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of ways in which the 1666 film just feels like an outlier. So 94 and 78 make really sort of pained efforts to feel um, pretty historically not accurate in like they're not biopics but you know they're they're using the music of the time and the costuming of the time mm-hmm. um and they're kind of creating narratives that fit like camps were a big thing in the 70s right um you know hanging out in the mall was a big thing in the 90s um and 1666 sort of loses its its effort to have this sort of like historically accurate not not like or like faithful to the spirit of 1666. I don't know yeah. how to describe it, but it, it, it clearly is just like, well, we found some costumes that are pilgrimy. Yeah. It um, felt like a, a, like a, a Middleton version of like a, it was like a high school production of the crucible. It really totally, was totally passable in its attempt to represent the time. Although you didn't really gain anything from having seen it. And, the moment that you start thinking deeper, you're like, actually, that's not what 1666 would have been like at all. Which, again, you don't go into these films expecting historical accuracy. No, of course not. But if you're going to set up this idea and say, audience, we're going to give you a really sort of like authentic feeling 94 and an authentic feeling 78. But then in 66, we're going to go ahead and have, you know, orgies in the woods and all the women can read. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're going to have these weird things happening with accents because and, which yeah. is why you're commenting about the high school music, uh, not musical, the high school version of Crucible feels so accurate because one of the decisions they made, which was intriguing, but didn't always pay off, mm-hmm. was having all of the actors from the first two films be characters, although we're, we're left to wonder whether or not they're they would look different Right. Just like uh, Dina is standing in for Sarah fear, but Sarah isn't doesn't look like Dina. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the consequence of that is that we have a lot of um, very young actors who are having to somehow be this old timey character. And the result was is like actors who played Dina adopted an accent that did not make sense. Sometimes it was yeah. Irish. Sometimes it was British. Sometimes it was like what she thought people would want to hear her sound like and it just kind of created a really weird sort of affect and you know how i can really how i can really tell that they didn't really even believe in doing this like 1666 time period justice and really committing to it is that they cut away from it it's only they then switched to part two of 19 
94. You're like, okay, all right. So you, you, that is another just like they didn't believe in their own concept yeah. because they just, they had to got away from it because they were like, that's all we can get out of yeah. this. That's all and, the mileage. And as a result, and they were right. They were right to cut away because it was incredibly boring because they didn't have anything right. there, which means that you either need to rewrite your story uh, in order to be m more interesting um, or you just need to not have this third film exist and have it only yeah. be two films, which I think is the real answer to it, to Or have problem. a third film be one of the other time, one of the other timelines, right? And, and have like, cutaway scenes to the 1666 if you really want to build that in we can yeah. have these flashbacks right because like you said it, these are all extended flashbacks um and i will say there were a couple things that stood out um i liked i really thought the actors who played thomas in in the 78 well, i don't remember his name in 1666 and the actor who played nick good but then played old timey good they both did a really good job i thought of of one of them being like you know why don't you want to be a witch with me and the other one having this like gross moist hair and he was like witches yeah. they're everywhere um you know i thought that was, was those that was really good yeah the, so were... there were these couple of moments but again it just felt so strange to have this um the like the idea that there is this orgy and and also honestly it felt a little strange to have dina and sam's relationship be in the 1666 right um because it's not that there haven't always been gay and lesbian people, because there have been. But oh, it just felt yeah. like a really weird... I don't know, it just felt odd. Like an odd thing to put into the to the narrative. So then we get to the interesting part of the film, which is the 94 part two, at least for me, right? Um, because we have the, like, assembling of the crew, and we have the reintroduction of the character Josh meets at the, the prison, at, or at the at jail. Prison. Yeah, he's a good character. Yeah. I, he, that guy brought at least some, like, spunk and some screen yes. presence to yes. him. So I was like, thank God this guy's here. Yeah. At least this third act isn't going to be a total waste. And and if you have ever smelled that Calvin Klein uh, cologne that she sprays all over her body, that's actually a really clever thing because that cologne is so strong that it mm -hmm. does obscure all scent, right? So there's these little moments. But then, but then... Then we get to what is arguably, for me, the one minute that was the worst minute of the entire three films. Mm -hmm. And that was the minute when zombie-esque, or, you know, like, monstery Sam is choking Dina, and then, through love, stops. Yeah, that was actually just super upsetting to watch. Yes. Not because I hate love and not yeah, it does sound like we're really i, I do terrible want people. to clarify <laughs> i i don't hate love and i i i that is not why i am harping on this i'm harping on this because this is a clear instance in which this trilogy trilogy breaks its own rules if this if this you know if we they could have even fixed this problem if we hadn't seen uh, a pair of lovers go through this before but we had in canon, in 1978, yeah. in the film we had just seen, presumably before watching this, we see Cindy With a relationship we liked better. Yeah, with Cindy and Tommy, actual characters who are in a relationship who seem like they, you know, maybe like each other or something. I, more than Dina and Sam, they have more reason to be together, and it doesn't work for them. Cindy is unable to convince Tommy to stop killing, and goes on. And so we're led to believe that love has no power here, that is established in this universe, 
And yet, because the filmmakers, I guess, couldn't think of another way out through the magic, through the deus ex machina of love, I guess the gods were like, here you go, have some love to save you from this weird zombie witchy thing. And you know what? It just doesn't work. That's no. unsatisfying. That is, is a cop out. And that just, I mean, it's a, I guess it works in only in context of this terrible A storyline. And it, none of the A storyline has been very satisfying yeah. before. So why should it be have a satisfying conclusion? But yeah. <laughs> and, and to be honest, the idea that, you know, Nick dies at the hand of Sarah Fear. And so Dina doesn't have to to do what what is required of most final girls right which is to take action right and to and to do something mm-hmm. um that will change you forever I, I just felt like the ending got a little soft um and emotionally and a little you know um saccharine in a, in a way that they had been trying to do away with throughout m- much of the rest of the films um and until this very end so it kind of left mm-hmm. you or me and you uh with this sort of like bitter taste in her mouth which is ironic because i just used the word saccharine but but you know it, it was like this yeah. it just didn't taste right um yeah so there's one last thing i think i want to say before we we wrap up um, and this is just it's a real quick but um i i agree that that again we're not watching these films for historical accuracy um no one should be watching these films for historical accuracy but i i do think we need to be careful um as filmmakers uh, and writers about about balancing between embracing a diversity of cast and characters because we should have those right there's not a single reason we shouldn't always have those um but balancing that with um just kind of reminding people that that the decisions we're making represent the past we wish we had had not the past that we actually have and i think Mm -hmm. that you know um there are times when it happens that that like people are very cognizant of it but it's the little moments right it's the having in 1978 a camp that is first off Sunnyvale and shady or sunny whatever Sunnyvale and shady side thank you but it's also the fact that um the camp all of the shadyville um people are 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 people of color right and the fact that they probably wouldn't have been um invited by the sunny side or sunnyvale people t- in yeah. 78 which is only 10 years after 10 the years. civil rights movement or in 94 i'm so excited that that in a film we're watching in 2021 we don't have to have a, a laborious moment about gayness but in 94 that would not have been as accepted as it was by by even her closest friends because and certainly not by everyone else with the casualness it is right because we have to remember that it's not in the united states until 1998 when matthew shepherd is killed that that the lgbtq movement began to say hey maybe gay um hate crimes should be legally considered you know punishable as hate crimes like so and so i, I would like to see just like at, at the end of films that have suicide where they provide the suicide um hotline for them to say we are so excited about the diversity of our cast and our characters but we would like to point out that um being gay is a struggle still today but it certainly would have been in the 90s mm-hmm. or we want to point out that yes we have a cast in our 1666 that reflects a lot of different people but they would have been all white and anyone who wasn't white would have been a servant or slave right like just yeah. little things like that would would let people remember we still have to fight systemic oppression is real we can't look at these films and be like oh well see it wasn't that bad because this is mm-hmm. 2021 putting itself on 1994. Yeah, you don't want to create a fantasy version of the past because 
that's what's leading it. That's what's creating a lot of our problems yes. today. I yes. mean, I, so I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Cause the answer is obviously not to, is to be like, Oh, we're doing a period piece time to cast no minorities. <laughs> what a terrible decision <laughs> that, that we've made historically for yeah, a very long time. Yeah. That's like that. I mean, that's a historically accurate one. It is what had been done for a very long time. It's a bad, boring decision and I don't really have any interest in seeing it, but it is a decision, and I so I think you're right. Just like the acknowledgement at the end of the film that like we chose to participate in blind casting, but that does not mean that at this time things were so yeah. things were as as good as this. Were there? I, I like it's a good attempt of the filmmakers though to try to rectify the sins of the past. You're like absolutely. Yeah, it was really bad during these times periods. But now this is a yes. here is a little our attempt yes. to not perpetuate yes. the same problems. And if you're not going to go as blatant as Hamilton, the musical does, right? Where they're just like, we're going to just make it real obvious that we're breaking every rule about who the people might have looked like at that time. If you're going to go more subtle, like Fear Street did, then I think you just need to acknowledge that. Hey, we've yeah. made some decisions and we're excited about them, but we want you to know. So. I'm curious to know, what are your all thoughts uh, about the Fear Street trilogy, in particular because it seems like um, everyone has a different favorite film. There are lots mm-hmm. of people that really liked 1666. Um, mm-hmm. I liked 94 best, you liked 78 best. So what was your favorite film of the three? What would you have liked to have seen? I would have loved if we would have had three different directors so that it felt more like an anthology, so each film felt like a whole different creature altogether. Yeah. Um, with different aesthetic as well as a different plot line as well as like all of it. I think I would have liked it more. I think I would have liked this better as a true anthology like you're saying as well. Just with even totally new cast of characters yeah. too. And you don't need to. The storyline that is happening it can happen at any point. You could focus on any of these points in time. That's what's so interesting about this yeah. universe and the cyclical nature of it. it and yet they tried to just streamline and serialize it, which is, it's, you know, it's a decision. I understand how they got there. It's not the one that I personally yeah. liked or would have enjoyed seeing the past, but it is a decision. Yeah. And maybe you all liked it. Yeah. So we'd love to know your thoughts. You can reach out to us um, on social media. You can provide comments. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can provide comments on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, email us, all of that good stuff. But Anthony, what else should they know? Well, I mean, I guess you should just know that I want you to have a spooktacular day. Wahaha. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs>